Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 103 of Energy Talks. Today I'm going to be talking to Ralph Torrey, who is the research director at Corporate Nights Magazine, about an article he wrote back in November called The Price of Making Peace with Nature. And it is the Corporate Nights Climate and Economic Renewal Plan. And so if you can imagine, I'm very interested in that. Welcome to the interview, Ralph. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for your interest. Look, I, I admit to some confirmation bias here because th- these are all issues uh, on that I've I've written about, uh, advocated for in some cases in columns, uh, interviewed many many experts about. I think you've you've got the basics down here. The where we're where we'll probably go in this interview is not so much much what needs to be done, but how it can be done. And uh, some of the stuff I've interviewed you before, uh, I've interviewed you for four on it. And uh, so I'll be interested to talk about that. But some of the other stuff I haven't. Uh, so we'll get your views on that. And maybe we could start off. Can you give us a little background on Corporate Nights magazine, if you don't mind? Well, uh, the magazine is actually part of a larger organization. It's a publishing and research organization based in Toronto. It does put out a magazine four times a year. It's been doing that for 20 years now. Uh, started out basically as an investigative journalism initiative to explore corporate behavior and misbehavior with respect to environment and sustainability issues. But it's evolved over the years into one of the world's most influential publications in the whole field of corporate sustainability uh, activity and and policies and impacts. It, uh, among other things, the research department generates an annual uh, list of the top 100 corporations, public corporations, uh, according to our analysis, uh, that rank highest in our sustainability uh, metrics. Um, This gets released uh, with quite a bit of attention at Davos every January. It's a a very sought after um, list to be on because it's considered one of the, one of the best and and, uh, one of the sustainability rankings with most integrity and because it's been around so long, it's it's widely uh, uh, regarded and uh, used as a reference point. We, um, uh, we, we also uh, put out a number of other data products. We've been in the last, the really interesting thing that we've been doing, if I could just say one more thing about what we're doing at Corporate Nights these days, is that we've gone beyond the traditional environment, sustainable uh, governance and, and social uh, metrics. I mean, we do those, the so-called ESG trio. But for the last couple of years, we've developed a taxonomy of what we consider to be sustainable production. 
And it's a fairly detailed set of definitions of what we consider to be sustainable if you're in the car business or the power business, or if you own buildings, or if you're making clothing or fashion and medicine, or if you're in the finance business. And then our research staff systematically uh, digs through company reports and other documents to determine what percentage of a company's revenue and what percentage of a, uh, a company's capital expenditures, investments, are aligned with this taxonomy that we've developed. And then we score the companies based on that. And we're finding this tremendous amount of interest in this, not the least because that when we're finished doing it and we evaluate the economic performance of these companies, they're outperforming the market, including throughout the pandemic. So this is reaffirming one of the big stories that's emerging in the world, which is that the companies that are making the products and services that we need uh, to get through this transition that we have to get through on sustainability and climate are, are actually doing very well uh, business-wise. Well, let's talk about um, some of those products. And uh, the first item on your uh, on your renewal plan is retrofit, modernize, and electrify most of the existing 9 million residential and commercial buildings across Canada. Now, I'm interested in this in a couple for a couple of reasons. One is this is the thing I interviewed you about last year. And secondly, uh, you know, we have a, a but a just under 1300 square foot bungalow on Vancouver Island, and we're slowly modernizing. It needs to be it's about 30 years old. We're upgrading it. So last, this spring we put in a heat pump. And I had no experience with heat pumps. And I'm amazed at how efficient it is, how cost effective it is how much more comfortable our house is. We're getting an electric vehicle in a, uh, in a couple of years. We just bought electric bikes. And I think that our experience, at least in Parksville and within our sort of social network, is kind of common. You know, everybody is migrating to that because it's it's A, affordable, and B, it's just better technology. You know, they, they people enjoy driving electric cars and they enjoy having heat pumps in their house and air conditioning and in the summer and so on. And so that I'm, I'm really keen on uh, to hear your thoughts on how we can go about retrofitting and electrifying, you know, 9 million buildings. It's no small task. Yeah. I, I mean, you're right about the technologies, the heat pump and the electric vehicle are going to be the workhorses of the trend towards greater use of electricity, greater efficiency and less carbon overall in our energy system. Um, the, the problem is, uh, especially with regard to the existing building stock, and most of the buildings that will be standing 20 years or even 30 years from now have already been built. So this is a retrofit challenge. And, and the challenge that we face there is that it's capital intensive. Now, you may have been able to afford it, but many people uh, would not be able to put up the necessary capital to do the necessary efficiency improvements to convert from from maybe a natural gas system to a to an electric heat pump system and to do it in a in a smart integrated way so that they get all of those comfort uh, and cost benefits over the long term that you're referring to so and, and to do it fast enough that it will make and on a wide enough scale that it will make a difference to the climate uh, challenge that you know we've got to respond to the climate emergency that we've got to respond to so my view is that uh, we have to take the risk off the shoulder of the homeowner. We have to take the front end financing off the shoulders of the homeowner. 
We have to find ways to do this on a massive scale that will bring down the economies, uh, bring down the costs per unit. And uh, we have to almost start thinking about buildings as a type of infrastructure, the same way we think about roads and bridges and power plants and other big expensive things that are in the public interest to build, but which require financing so that the costs can be spread out over time in a way that makes them affordable for everybody and that distributes those costs fairly and equitably. So it's not only the middle class and the rich that are able to have those comfortable heat pump heated homes, but everybody, because that's the only way we're going to get enough of these soon enough to get our emissions down. Because, you know, a, a big percentage of the greenhouse gas emissions in this country have to do with the fossil fuels that we're burning in furnaces and, and uh, heating systems and buildings. Sure. Um, what do you think of the electricity as a service model? Now, I run across this a number of times in the in the U.S. It seems to be less popular in uh, in Canada. I've never seen it in Western Canada, but I, I, I have seen a couple of firms doing this in Ontario. And so basically... The, the model that I'm familiar with is the company goes and says, talks to like a school district and they say, okay, you've got 10 schools and you want to upgrade them. You want to, you want to retrofit them. You want to put solar panels on them, bring in heat pumps, all of that. We'll make, we'll bring all the capital to do that. And we'll get paid back over X number of years. Sometimes it's from the savings you know, by lowering the energy uh, bills of the school district, sometimes there's some other arrangement, but it's, it, it basically uh, addresses that issue of, you know, the upfront capital costs. And what's your take on that? Is, is that a viable well, I mean, model? That, that's exactly what we have to, to, to do. And that we, it, it is viable and it needs to be scaled up on a level that is way beyond what we're doing now. Right now, the retrofit industry that we've got is a do-it-yourself, manage-it-yourself, finance-it-yourself sort of situation. And we, the, the industry that we need to do 9 million buildings is not the industry that we currently have. And one of the missing pieces is the type of financing that you're talking about that would bring the, the large investment numbers into play in a way that they're not now, where it's one house at a time sort of thing. And I, I think if we can do that, using the type of system that you're that you just described that that approach only i would say it's not so much electricity as a service as it is comfort as a service because if you're including spending on retrofitting as part of the overall package uh you may very well be reducing the electricity use of that of that uh, home in fact you will be uh in a way that makes their overall cost of ownership of a comfortable uh home go down but it may not make the the uh, number of kilowatt hours that they're buying go down or go up for that matter. So the focus really ought to be on comfort. And this is this is something that our current regulatory systems often work against, where we have the electricity sector, to use that example again, where the focus is on keeping the price of the kilowatt hour as low as possible. And and that made sense 50 or 60 years ago when these regulatory frameworks were being we're, we're being uh, devised, but what we need now is a much more holistic, systemic approach that will bring in the investments in the building retrofits and the efficiency of the building shell itself, which under the current regulatory framework are not always going to be in the interests of the utility. We have to make it in their interest. And uh, the kind of approach that you're talking about applied to energy efficiency is the way to do that. 
Right. And I, I see in uh, British Columbia, you know, which um, regularly gets uh, top marks for energy efficiency programs and its climate leadership, uh, climate plan and so on. Uh, and yet the uh, the utility, the major utility here is BC Hydro. It's Crown Owned Corporation. And I, I know the government would disagree with this characterization, and I certainly I know the BC Hydro would. But as is often the case, the utility has captured the government. You, you know, the you, you, the government uh, seems to take on, on matters of elect electricity and energy efficiency and so on. It seems to to take direction from the crown instead of the other way around, where the government should be should be directing the uh, uh, the utility. And and that may and of course you incumbents uh, don't like change. Utilities are very risk averse, conservative organizations, and they they don't like change. And so they resist and they they put up all sorts of barriers to these exactly the kind of programs that you're talking about. How do we get how do we get around that? Well, I think the first thing you have to recognize is that this is a big, powerful historical trend that they're up against, and resistance in the long run is futile. And the utilities that that stick their heads in the sand and think that they can that they can continue with a business model that is, you know, really dates to the 20th century, uh, are going to find themselves increasingly at a disadvantage to those utilities that can see which way the trends are moving and get out in front of these trends. And by that, I mean, embrace the microgrid, embrace the investment in distributed generations, find ways that you can change your business model so that you are leading the move towards a more distributed electricity system in which uh, consumers, so-called prosumers, can both be contributing to and uh, taking from the grid. Uh, invest in, in the whatever needs to be done right down to the neighborhood level to allow the bi-directional electric vehicle charging and the heat pump conversions and the neighborhood storage to be put in place that will give us a more distributed and resilient grid because it's coming anyway. The, the fundamentals are so strongly aligned with this big shift uh, that that I, I really do feel that, that we'll be much further ahead if our big BMF utilities like BC Hydro get behind it rather than seeing it as a threat. Uh, it, it's actually quite an attractive future, both environmentally and from a business point of view. Once you get around, uh, get beyond the idea that it, you know that the change has to be resisted just because it's changed. This is going to be good for everybody in the long run. We'll have a better, more reliable electricity system. It will be cleaner. People's costs of uh, being comfortable and getting the services that they need will go down. And perhaps most importantly, it will be the center of an effective response to climate change. Electricity is, is really central to any effective response to the climate emergency. And I have to keep repeating that word emergency. If, if climate change was not an emergency, then who cares how long it would take us to get through this transition? It wouldn't really matter if it went as slowly as it's going. But the problem is, that we are up against uh, uh, impacts from climate change already, which are going to be increasingly unaffordable. We're going to have five, six, seven percent of the entire economic output of this country being devoted to coping with floods and wildfires and storm surges before the end of this decade. We've got to get on top of this, and it means doing what's necessary to electrify, to decarbonize the electricity system, and uh, 
and, and the retrofit of our neighborhoods, not just the houses, but the whole way that the energy system works at the neighborhood level is a, is a central foundation stone in, in, that, in that transition. Right. Well, let's get to the second point. Uh, I mean, you covered a lot of it. Uh, the second point in your plan, which is rapid, rapidly expand the supply of renewable electricity and storage and increase interprovincial grid connections. Now, this is, you know, I'm fond of uh, a bit of a hobby horse that I ride uh, in my interviews, which is that while fossil fuels were the fuel of the 20th century economy, clean electricity, abundant electricity, low-cost electricity is going to be the fuel of the 21st century economy. And you can, you know, what we're talking about now, you can already already see that shift. And it's amazing to me that the Americans, and, and I guess because, you know, they, they uh, had so much coal in their system, 60, 70%, not that long ago, and, and they've... So they are remaking their power grids at a remarkable pace. And the the kind of discussion or the kind of points that you were making about adopting the, you know, these amazing new technologies through flattening the utility business model, uh, prosumers feeding in, you know, buying and selling electricity on the on the on the grid. I mean, that's it's in Canada, it's that's like science fiction. And the, uh, you know, if you talk to Quebec, Quebec Hydro is a, a progressive, uh, you know, utility in Canada, Crown Corporation. So they kind of lead the charge in some of that, but they're still not anywhere near where the Americans are. And then when you're talking about SAS power and you're talking about Manitoba Hydro and BC Hydro and, you know, and Ontario is, you know, where you live, it's just, uh, it's a nightmare. Uh, they're still talking about ramping up gas for crying out loud in the 2020s and relying on nuclear. So we aren't, you know, we're not even talking about what needs to be done with the, ele the Canadian electricity system. And it seems to me that what we had before in the 20th century was so successful that we've become very complacent about the changes that are play taking place now and what we how we need to respond to them. And that makes it very difficult to even have the conversation at the public level with government and so on. What's your, how would you respond to that? You know, I, I think I'm actually not quite as negative as you are about what's going on. I agree that the big central uh, electric utilities probably have the most difficulty being agile and responsive to the changing conditions that are coming. They've historically never been good at it. They always, uh, and, you know, there's a long history of these utilities not really understanding the changes that were going on in their own marketplace. However, when you look at what's happening at the local distribution level in a number of provinces, at the community level, at the encouragement of, um, of uh, distributed generation and so on, even here in Ontario, uh, there's quite a bit that's bubbling up from the, from the bottom up, as it were, that will force this change uh, to occur. The other thing I would say is that uh, the problem is you, it, it's very difficult to generalize in Canada on this. The the situation in British Columbia and Manitoba and Quebec, uh, Newfoundland to an extent, is quite different uh, where you've got an abundance of hydroelectricity than in, let's say, Alberta and, and, and Saskatchewan and, and Nova Scotia, where uh, fossil fuel is still a mainstay of electricity generation. So the the options are different. The role <laughs> of electricity is different. Uh, fortunately, the 
provinces that have surpluses and that will continue, I think, to have surpluses of carbon-free electricity because of their hydro legacy hydro resources are right next door to provinces that are going to uh, have more difficulty decarbonizing their electricity supply, whether it's BC and Alberta, uh, Manitoba and Saskatchewan, Ontario and Quebec, uh, Quebec and Atlantic Canada. Fortunately, uh, you know, the, the haves and the have-nots are, are side by side across this country. So the prospect of greater east-west connectivity in, in those particular pairings of provinces is really important, I think, over the long run to getting a low carbon outcome right across the country. And uh, that's one of the things that that I've been advocating for, certainly. And, and then I think uh, more generally uh, to encourage the kind of transformation of the grid which we know is coming because it's because it's 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 happening on a global level and the technologies that are driving it the heat pump the electric vehicle the digital controls the smart grid technologies the battery storage these are coming they're being developed and deployed uh, around the world we're not going to be able to keep them out of canada even if we wanted to and so another reason to get out in front of this one of the things that we're doing here at corporate nights we have a thing called the Council for Clean Capitalism, which is a sort of a coalition of Canadian business leaders who push for innovation and change in areas that will advance sustainability. And we we think that there's an urgent need to demonstrate these neighborhood level microgrids across Canada through a series of demonstration projects that would show how it, it, it can work and how the cost can be brought down if we do this at scale and which would identify whatever regulatory barriers need to be swept out of the way in order to encourage more rapid dissemination of the microgrid um, uh, approach to the electricity supply and demand across across the country. But yeah, it's a, it's an uphill battle, but um, I gotta tell you, I started on this you know, 40 years ago. My first low carbon analysis for Canada was done in 1981. And uh, we didn't have the electric car as an option in that analysis. We didn't really have the heat pump. Uh, we didn't really have any great options for getting the transportation sector off fossil fuel, except maybe biofuels. And to do it on a large scale was going to be an environmental problem. So I, it, it's actually, there's been a lot of progress. There's, there's, there's acceptance, more and more acceptance, of course, of the science of climate change. There's more and more... Uh, technological developments. I mean, I think it, it now really can be said that the technologies that we need to address this problem are available. Their fundamental economics has generally been proven and accepted. So we're really down now to the problems of change, of implementation, of trying to build this new world uh, with regulatory and business uh, uh, models that that are really designed for the previous century. And the thing about regulatory frameworks and business models, they can be changed in a split second because they exist only in our minds. And as soon as we start thinking differently about what the business plan is, what the policy framework is, what the regulatory environment is that we need, those can be changed actually very quickly. I know it doesn't always seem that way. It seems like these are just insurmountable barriers sometimes, but they're just software and, and they can be changed much more quickly than let's say hard infrastructure can be changed. So another reason why I still remain hopeful, if not optimistic, that that we're going to be able to achieve the change that we need to respond to climate change. 
Well, uh, you you are more optimistic than I am, and but I agree with you on the availability of the technology that we require. The energy transition is, in my opinion, largely driven now by uh, new technologies, and and while that's enabling, uh, I fear that Canada is uh, our issues are cultural and political, and even less cultural and more and more about politics. And about governments getting it right. I mean, you only have to look at governments in uh, conservative governments in in Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, and Ontario, and the resistance they put up to to change within their energy systems. And that's not that's not encouraging. And even in even in provinces like BC, which are I don't know for lack of a better word more progressive. Uh, the change is is not nearly as encompassing and rapid as as it needs to be. So the the conversations like this, I hope, further the discussion we need at a national level to change the politics, change the culture, and move this this agenda along. But let's so let's talk about some of the change that is coming, uh, and and that is electric vehicles. So you argue in the plan. That you that Canada should increase electric vehicle market shares to 100% of light vehicles, 75% of trucks, uh, so medium duty and heavy duty, uh, with 10 million EVs on the road by 2030, and a fully built out Trans Canada fast charging infrastructure. That's pretty ambitious. How would we go about doing that? Uh, well, you just. <laughs> There's no mystery about how you would build it. We know how to build chargers. We know how to build electric vehicles. So really the how is how do you do it that quickly? And, you know, I, I think the key to that how question, and it comes up all down the list. How will we get the retro funds, retrofits done that quickly? How can we get the electric, uh, the transport sector electrified that quickly? Um, how, how can we get, get the... Um, the coal, the remaining fossil fuel out of our electricity systems uh, that quickly. In every case, I stop and I say, well, think about the way we responded to the pandemic in this country. That's what an emergency response looks like. We say that climate change is an emergency, but we're not really behaving that way yet. And, you know, the title of the article that you referred to at the beginning of, of this uh, conversation was the price of making peace with nature. And that was actually actually a, an allusion to the title of a book about uh, John Maynard Keynes that I read this past year called the, the Price of Peace, in which I was reminded of the historical role that the public investor has played in these large historical transitions. And when you look at that, uh, capability that we've got when we really decide to make a concerted effort like we did in responding to the pandemic all sorts of impossible things suddenly become possible and in fact the level of capital investment that would be required over the rest of this decade to effectively respond to climate change is smaller than the investment the federal government alone has made in the last two years in responding to the pandemic We've spent $250 billion a year, the federal government responding to pandemic. We think that a total of about $126 billion a year would be sufficient between now and 2030 
to put us well, well on the way to a low, very low carbon economy in this country. And it's a lot of money. It's a lot of capital, but it's not out of the ballpark. We can afford it. It's less than what climate change itself is going to be costing us before the end of this decade if we don't get in front of it. As I mentioned, it's half of what we've been spending on the COVID response. And, you know, it's it's a fraction, you know, it, it's much less than the roughly four or five hundred billion dollars a year of capital investment that occurs in this economy, which is a two thousand billion dollar economy. So we can afford to do this. We just haven't yet got to the point where we're responding to it uh, in a way that aligns with our rhetoric, which is, yes, this is a climate emergency. Well, if we really believe it's an emergency, then we have to allocate capital on that sort of a scale. It's, it, it, it's not on the same level as, say, World War II or something like that. It's not even on the level of the pandemic, but it's many, many times higher than what we've been able to muster to date. And unless and until we can turn that corner and start treating the climate emergency like the emergency that it really is, we will continue to fall short of the emission reduction curve that we need to get on if we're going to you know, stave off the very worst impacts of climate change. Okay, fair enough. Uh, but there, there, there becomes, uh, if you dealt with the issue of capacity, of, of, uh, uh, of capital, so we've got lots of money and we could scare it up if we had to. And we, uh, on things like electric vehicles, I think the political, uh, the politics have shifted. People really like electric vehicles now. They, probably the majority of consumers would buy an electric vehicle the next time they have to buy to buy a car. The problem is, as I see it, is is the industrial capacity to produce all of all of the equipment that needs to be. Uh, that we would need, you know, like 10 million vehicles on the road by 2030. So what, what would we need? Nine and a half million uh, EVs. And I suppose we could buy a lot of those on the open market from other countries, US or or China or wherever. But of course, why wouldn't we want to produce those uh, in Canada? And this is, a, you know, full disclosure. I've, I've said this before on, on the podcast. I was contracted as a freelance writer to write the uh, Alberta Federation of Labor's uh, Skate to Where the Puck is Going report. And a key part of that uh, is arguing for the return of the entrepreneurial state. The state the state that leads, the state that invests, the state that takes risks and and in, in implements industrial strategy and industrial policy in response to the very questions that we're talking about. Because at the end of the day, we can say that we need to do this and we can afford to do that and all of that, but somebody has to lead. And if it isn't, and if, if it isn't the market, if it isn't corporations, if it isn't entrepreneurs, then the the state has to step up. And by that, I mean governments. And so we argued in that report that we need the, the entrepreneurial state to return, and it needs to begin this modern idea of modern industrial policy. We saw finance minister Christia Freeland refer to that in the economic fall statement. She was talking about robust industrial policy is coming from the federal government. And so I think we're starting to pivot a little bit in that direction. And do you think, would you agree with that or or not? I, I hope so, because I, I agree with you that the public investor and the entrepreneurial state is a 
essential part of how you know we're we're going to get through this, and uh, I I hope that we're getting there. I you know I have good days and bad days in terms of the answer to the question of whether I think it's really there yet. Um, we. I think one of the things that's encouraging that I see uh, when I look at what's going on up in Ottawa is that there's a growing understanding that this is where the global economy is going in the 21st century. And in the 20th century, if you didn't have a piece of the fossil fuel industry, which we had in Canada, or if you didn't have a piece of the automobile industry, which we did have in Canada, then you were unlikely to be a leading economy in the world in the 20th century. Well, in the 21st century, it's going to be the electric systems, the smart buildings, the plant-free proteins, the batteries, the, the uh, control and digitalization systems. These are going to be the mainstays of the 21st century economy. These are going to be where we will earn the export money that we will start to lose as the oil and gas sector winds down. And so the survival of Canada as a first tier nation and a first tier economy in the world really revolves around whether we see the kind of leadership that you are describing, not only so that we can do our own part in responding to climate change here in Canada, but so that we can position our country to continue to help provide the rest of the world with what it needs to get through this transition. And we are so blessed with many of the resources that are needed for that. For example, when it comes to the battery supply chain, I don't think there's another country in the world that has all of the ingredients that make up what's needed to be uh, a manufacturer of the of the electricity, the electric batteries, the vehicle batteries, and the utility batteries, and so on, that are going to be needed for this transition. We ought to be a leader in that. Same goes for the electricity system more generally. Same goes for plant-based protein, which is a burgeoning sector. Canada has huge opportunities to be a world economic leader in that field. We already are. The same goes for um, for buildings. Believe it or not, Canada is way overrepresented when it comes to holders of very large portfolios of commercial buildings. We have some of the largest commercial building landlords in the world uh, headquartered right here in Canada. That gives us a platform to push forward with the smart building technologies that are critical to the decarbonization in that sector. And as I started in this, this long response, uh, it's these realizations that are bringing a whole new set of allies, if you like, into the push for the kind of leadership, government leadership that you're talking about, the recognition that if Canada is going to continue to be a, a successful economy with a vigorous trading relationship with the rest of the world, we have to be making these things and we have to be good at doing them. And, and uh, I, I think that that's contributing along with the need to respond to climate change to an acceleration of support and uh, from our from our governments for this activity, but yeah, it's still too slow. And you know, it's twenty. It's it's going to be twenty twenty three in a few weeks, and um, we're we're running out of time to really up our game in this. Right, agreed. Uh, I want to talk about uh, one of your points in your plan that's very near and dear to my heart, uh, and I bring it up uh, frequently on uh, on these podcast interviews. And now you talk about the support, the economic conversion of Canada's oil patch to a post-petroleum era 
by redeploying expertise and resources to growth sectors and high value uh, high value added opportunities such as the burgeon, burgeoning carbon fiber market. And I should, again, getting back to the uh, AFL uh, report, this was the number one mission uh, because, of course, they're in Alberta. That's oil and gas is, is huge there, the epicenter of the industry. And the report argued that it's time to transition the oil, oil, the hydrocarbon extraction industry from producing feedstock for fuels, refineries, basically, to feedstock for materials. And we're still a couple of years away from turning bitumen into carbon fiber, but it looks like I've interviewed the uh, Alberta Innovates folks who are leading that research. They think we're only, uh, we could have a, a commercial process as early as this, uh, as next year but probably 20, no later than 2024. Uh, and there's all kinds of other uh, activity going on. In, in Calgary, you see the Alberta Carbon Conversion Technology Center. There's already a, a company there called Carbon Upcycle that uh, injects, that embeds CO2 into cement. Uh, so it sequesters emissions and actually makes a better product. They make vodka and soap. I mean, this this is an era, uh, an industry that, China leads on, and that Canada, because we could have captured lots of captured CO2 plus bitumen, there's a huge uh, opportunity here to build a CO2-based, uh, a carbon-based manufacturing industry. So get away from fuels, get into making things with this, with this resource, but I don't think that's what you had in mind in your plan, or am I misreading it? Uh, no, it sounds like the type of thing we're talking about. It, it's, um, you know, there's a similar trend going on in the bio sectors in agriculture, but also particularly in forestry, where um, the idea of going for higher value added products and substitutes for fossil fuel based materials and so on uh, is taking taking precedence over, you know, lower value added products like wood pellets or, or liquid fuels and so on. And so I, I think that, that uh, this is the way forward for the petroleum industry, the petroleum producing industry in Canada, as, as I guess you must know, the bitumen is particularly chemically and structurally well suited for uh, feedstock for carbon fiber materials. And so if they can achieve the um, economic and price breakthroughs that are necessary, Canada ought to be very well positioned to be a world leader in the production of carbon fiber and uh, higher value added materials. You know, it's stuff is too good to burn, <laughs> especially yeah, exactly. if you don't have to. Yeah, that's a, the, the absolute lowest value uh, use for bitumen is burning it. It's in its well, it's going to be true. Yeah, I think that's true for just about anything. If you look at Europe, for example, Half of the biomass that they uh, use in Europe, I think maybe more than half, goes into combustion at power plants and district heating plants. But it's responsible for, for less than 5% of the revenue from biomass sales. So it gives you an idea of just how lopsided the value proposition is between taking something and just burning it for heat versus making something lasting and useful out of it. So there's a general trend that's going on, not only in the looking at the future of petroleum-based products, but also uh, bio-based products as well. 
Sure. Well, I'll give you some some numbers. Uh, Alberta Innovates did a white paper a couple of years ago. And if you begin with the assumption that uh, the market would pay $30 for a barrel of, uh, of heavy crude, uh, bitumen, uh, if you turn that uh, barrel into carbon fiber, you would get $217 worth of value out of the barrel. So whereas Alberta right now is essentially leaving a lot of money on the table uh, by not by not doing that. Now, of course, you know they're working in that in that direction, and and this, uh, but there's not only the oh, and I should also mention I I did an article for um, Alberta Views magazine uh, last year and interviewed Zoltec Manufacturing out of Missouri, which is one of the big American carbon fiber manufacturers, and they've been in touch with Alberta Innovates following that research, and I was told that if uh, Alberta Innovates succeeds in creating a bitumen-based carbon fiber precursor. You always locate the carbon fiber plant as close to the source of the precursor as you can. That's just the way the industry works. And I asked them, uh, you know, would you would you build plants in Alberta? And they said absolutely. So there's a supply chain as well that produces all kinds of jobs and all kinds of prosperity. Now I know we're, we've we've run long on this uh, interview, uh, Ralph. Uh, so, and I appreciate the time you've, how much time do you have? Uh, well, I actually have someone here that's waiting for me, but, um, I'd well, let's, let's wrap this up. Let, let's wrap okay. this up. We've had, a, we've, uh, we've, we've talked for 40 minutes. We're, uh, we're probably need to give our, my listeners a break. Uh, thank you very much mm-hmm. for this. I really appreciate it. I'd the, uh, article that I referenced earlier came out on November 24th and it's, uh, the price of making peace with nature. And I'd encourage all of my listeners to uh, to read it, and we'll have you back again to chat about these these issues. Well, thank you for inviting me, Mark, and for the conversation. I've enjoyed it, and thank you for your interest and 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 advocacy for these changes that we need. Well, likewise. Oh, and, we'll and Merry again. Christmas, and to you. We'll talk again. Mm-hmm.